Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. Good morning, and my name is Alton, like Brad said. Some of us have been reading a book together called uh, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. One of the powerful statements that he makes in the book is that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people from earth to heaven, but to colonize the earth with the life of heaven. I'm happy you guys are here today, and uh, it's good to see you, and looking forward to worshiping with you. Yeah, let's let this statement kind of linger here for a moment. Because it changes everything. This changes the way we do church. This changes the way we think about church. Spiritual life, faith, what growing faith looks like. If the plan actually is not Jesus is going to hurry up and take us out of this evil, awful world, but he actually loves this world and came into it to love it and calls his followers to be hope and light in this world. It just, it, 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 changes, it changes the way. I grew up in a, a really great church in so many respects, but our church did not think that way. We did not think we're here to be Jesus' movement in the world. And I think it's why there's just so much in, in spiritual life asleep today. Churches are not appealing. Church attendance is dropping every generation now. The last couple hundred years, the last hundred years especially, uh, COVID has really sped that up. And I'm sitting here at the beginning to just kind of share my heart with you on something. This is a late addition to this morning's message. I want to be really transparent with you here for a few minutes before I get into my, my planned message. Um, Pastoring church, churches is hard. <laughs> it's hard right now. Uh, I don't think it's ever been easy, but it's, it's, uh, it's challenging. And it's challenging when, and I, when I say this, I'm, I'm really speaking about the American church. I'm not thinking about anyone here at Dulles, although this has been said to me. I think it's been six months or more since I've heard this statement where people are coming in once, once a month, maybe twice a month on a Sunday morning to their church, and they say to their pastor with some level of um, disappointment or frustration, where is everybody? And that actually happened to me back here by this door. The last time it happened was, like I said, maybe six months ago. And uh, what do you do with that? And pastors are in regular meetings, Zoom calls. I have a retreat coming up in October at North Point in Atlanta, who we're partnered with. And these are the regular conversations we're having. I had a retreat earlier in the summer with 16 North Point pastors, and three, three of the pastors showed up like on the verge of quitting. And there were some tears, and I, you know, I got to be, I've, I've been on the receiving end of encouragement. I got to be an encourager that week. And these guys are just saying, it's just hard. One guy in Montreal started his church, and he's like, no Canadian wants to come to our church. 
I had no idea I'd end up with a Spanish-speaking immigrants, Canadian immigrants, mostly Latin, uh, are attending his church. He said, I've got to learn Spanish fast. Who would have thought moving? I, you know, I've, I've been focused on French, French. I've got to learn French. Now I've got to learn Spanish. Canadians just don't want to come. They're tired of church. They're tired of religion. They're done. And that's really kind of the voice or the echo that we hear in America. I, I had lunch recently with a pastor of a pretty large church in Northern Virginia. And he was like, how's it going for you, Brad, after COVID? And I, I started positive. I didn't realize I was supposed to start with a negative answer. I said, you know, we... I don't think I've ever been in such a unified church. Things have been challenging since COVID. There's just unity. It's like we're a big family, a big team. And, and he looked more depressed as I talked. Uh, and then I, I said, you know, things are small. Things are small. And then he lit up like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> like I was suddenly encouraging him. And I said, well, yeah, things are smaller everywhere. And he said, man, things are so small for us. And, you know, they're, they're a pretty large church. And he said, we're at about 60% back since pre-COVID. And then Carrie Newhoff, who's a, the, probably the leading church leader blogger, church uh, pastors and church leaders all around the world follow Carrie's blog twice a week. Uh, really, really insightful stuff. He does a lot of great research. And he wrote a pretty blunt article about a week ago and said, pastors, wake up Stop waiting for people to come back. COVID has changed the church forever. And I'm going to speed up here. I'm not going to cite all of Kerry's article, but I'm going to tell you my interpretation of the article. He doesn't say this implicitly, but the days of pastors and bands and speakers, men and women from the stage, pardon this word, entertaining the community, or being so moving or so emotional, or the songs or the music are just exactly what we want. And that's what grows the church are over. They're over. They were almost over before COVID, and COVID killed that. And I think it's a move of God. I think God is behind all of this. The days of, I even struggle sometimes, I really do. I don't want to sound too weird about this, but I struggle being elevated on a stage and spotlights. I understand this is, this is normal and we're going to keep doing this for a while, but maybe someday I'll be down on the floor with you. I don't know. And maybe we'll do a series. I, I, just this, 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 this is where the artists are. This is where the, the leaders are. These are the people who are going to grow this thing or up here. That's, that's just not in the New Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It was the people of the church who saw themselves as the voice of life and the encouraging storytellers to neighbors who were hurting that created this explosive growth that we read in the book of Acts and in the, in the New Testament and how fast the church not, not the church, the organization, but the movement of Jesus changing hearts and lives, and brokenness, and regrets, and guilt into beautiful, beautiful stories. That movement that went west into Europe and east into Asia almost overnight 
was because the church didn't think, well, it's his job or her job. The preaching's just got to be better. Or the music needs to be better. Or the, that, that's a Western concept. In, in, in America in the last hundred years, we've really adopted this sort of entertainment church attitude. And so I'm going to just challenge you. We're, we're ending the series today. This is part 12. I've never done a 12-part series. I don't think ever. So we're ending the series, The Most Exciting Idea on Earth. And this is, this is a great litmus test for us in terms of whether we, we together, are ready to live out the point of the series. Are, are, we, are we just going to keep attending? And I'm, I'm not directing that. I really don't think we are attending. I really think everybody's been in this. And I've, the responses I've heard from you have been really encouraging and great this summer. But I, I, I just felt, I really believe this was God's spirit prompting this in me to ask this question. Will you come out of the series seeing yourself daily, regularly, throughout the week, asking God, God, who do you want me influencing? Who in my neighborhood, who at work, who is it? Not, not trying to convert or grow our church and make our church bigger, but who, whose darkness or depression or discouragement or broken marriage or stressful life at work, whose situation do you want me to be light and encouragement and ultimately your beauty, Jesus? Whose life do you want me to invest in today, this week? See, that's what, that's what people, us, you and me, not pastors, but followers of Jesus who are understanding this and practicing this idea we've been talking about. That's the way we think. We think it's up to me. It's not up to the people up on stage. It's up to me, the follower of Jesus who's being changed by him, to now offer that. Not preach at somebody, but offer what's been offered to me. Through friendship, through trust building. The idea of preaching at somebody or carrying a big Bible around or protesting. Man, those, God has killed that. Thank God that is dead. I really believe that's dead. It just, it, it doesn't work. It never worked. It never should have worked. Trust building takes time. It takes Tuesday nights. It takes Saturday mornings. Lots of coffee. Lots of transparency. Openness with a friend about mistakes you've made. And guilt you've carried. Regrets you have as a parent. How your marriage didn't go exactly the way you had dreamt. That honesty with someone is what draws them into your story with Jesus. And it takes work and it takes time. And there's cost. And that is the picture of the movement of Jesus today. And pastors everywhere are like, where is everybody? And Carrie wrote last week, stop asking when are they coming back. It's going to be the movement of the church, not pastors, not bands, not people up on stage. It's going to be followers of Jesus who are offering this life and friendship and encouragement one person at a time that's going to be the movement of Jesus in this world. And then we stop putting our hope in politics in the next election. So it's so shallow. It's so shallow. When are we ever going to learn 
Here we are, we're already talking about the midterm. It's just all over the news. It's driving every part of the news cycle. When are we gonna learn that American politics, I love our country, I love our country. Our country, I think we have still, we're the most free, the most opportunities here, but American politics is never gonna solve what creates the angst in all of us. It's gonna be Jesus, the reality of Jesus changing the human heart. When do you hear CNN or Fox News talking about the transformation of the human heart? (laughs) Never. Because politics can't do that. But I'm telling you, I have experienced it personally, and Jesus does it. And that's just what I want to be on the ready to offer to someone who's searching or in need or feels broken or hurting. Okay, so... Time for my message. That's a setup to our final part. If you're listening online, on Spotify, on iTunes this morning, welcome. We're happy to have you with us also. I started this series in week one asking the question, where's a place that you've traveled to that you love so much You'll do almost anything to get back there someday and and take friends with you. Remember that question? We actually talked about it, and we got feedback from people around the room. I showed a video from Montana, I think, or Yosemite Park, and I showed a couple pictures of our family trip a few years ago to Yosemite. Oh, my gosh, Mackenzie and I have talked about it so many times. She wants to go and spend a week there doing nighttime photography. It was just so much about these places. And some of you shared places like, oh, I can't wait to get back. And maybe you've already traveled back, or maybe it's become like a regular destination place for you. We have these places, and we have bucket list places, and there's the, there's the music events, or the, that, that music festival we someday want to get to, or these, these iconic events around the world, or this dream location that is like life-giving or inspiring to you. And somehow we've adopted the idea that we're way ahead of God. God is like in boring, ancient, kind of ruins kinds of places. He's in quiet cathedrals. And, you know, you have to whisper and pay your respect that that's where God's interested in those places. We are interested in the life-giving, inspiring places. And I'm just telling you, he's way ahead of you. God is way ahead of you in terms of what's life-giving and what's inspiring and what's beautiful. And where, like, what technology can do. We think, as inventors, oh, we're, we are advancing a way ahead of God, the God of the old Bible. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, God is so far ahead of you and me. My dad grew up as a baseball fan. He's one of the biggest baseball fans I've ever known. And funny enough, he was a Washington Senators fan, but uh, grew up kind of in poverty, really, uh, didn't get to go to a senator's game till a few times as a teenager, an older teenager. So he, he actually was more a Boston Red Sox fan because that's the only team he could hear every day on the radio. He couldn't even hear the senators every day, but he could hear the Red Sox. So he ended up being a Ted Williams fan. And the Green Monster, that big giant wall in left field at Fenway Park was this icon in my dad's head, and he'd never actually seen it on TV until one of the neighbor kids got a black and white TV. And he remembers the day when he was like 11 or 12, 
It was big news on their dirt road that somebody has a TV, this, a television, and he saw the green monster in black and white for the first time. And when my dad tells me the story, I mean, we get kind of emotional. Like, this was a big moment in his childhood. And so about four years ago, I got to take my dad to a Red Sox game. It's, it's hard to explain what it was like walking through the old Fenway Tunnel or, you know, entrance it's the goosebumps, you know, and just the chills. You kind of go silent. My dad's fighting back emotion. Just walking through the back tunnels that are 105 years old or whatever. And then we walked out, you know, we sat kind of on the right, right field side and we're staring at the green monster and we're just like, wow, this is just, and it was remarkable. This, it's hard to put into words when you walk into a place like that. There's sports terms like cathedral, you know, you've heard about Wrigley or, or Lambeau Field, Fenway Park. That They're like these sports cathedrals, right? You've heard that term. And what's meant by that is all this history is in this place. These memories flood. My dad's like Ted Williams and all the Yankees rivalry. That's been happening this week. You know, the, the judge home run race has been against the Red Sox this week. And it's just all of this history that you can't sit in a three or four hour game and talk through enough because there's just too many stories happened right here on that field. And yet people like us, Dan and Brad, are here now. There's nobody else here. It's just this handful of people and us in this place today. It's like this weird convergence of history and all that's happened here, all the presidents who've been here and thrown out first pitches, amazing World Series runs and pennant races, and here we are, sitting in seats in Fenway today. You know, it's, it's, it's just that, wow, we get to be here. And somehow the church, at least for a century, if not longer, has adopted this idea that the place that's most bucketless to God, that's most important to God, that he prioritizes the most, is the, the, the clouds... And sort of gaudy gold of heaven. When what we find out reading the New Testament, this most exciting idea, is that consistently the place that God describes is the cathedral, or the biblical word is temple. That sounds like a boring word, but we're gonna we're gonna look at that this morning and how relevant it is to what we're talking about. God's dream, God's priority, what he constantly is trying to draw us back to is the idea of the cathedral, the convergence of his space, his activity, his love, his creativity, and human space where we live and breathe and work and relate. He dreams of the convergence of those two places together. The biblical word for this, man, it sounds just so irrelevant to us, the word temple. But that's the word. Ancient Israel, broken in their own sin and selfishness. They've, you know, we, we know the story. Humans broke creation. Creation was supposed to be perfect. No aging. <clears throat> my, one of my daughters asked me recently, Dad, what do you think, where would humans be if we had never chose, chosen selfishly? If we had never, we talk at Dulles all the time about how humans broke everything. We broke the world. Now there's disease and there's death and there's division. And 
racism, you know, there's all the stuff that all of us hate. That's because human selfishness tried to take control away from God. If we hadn't done that, where do you, what, would, what would life look like? And I said, well, sweetheart, I, I don't know exactly, but I can tell you I think we'd be all over our galaxy, not just our solar system. And she was like, wait a minute, what? And I said, yeah, I think, our innovate, I think technology, I think we would be so creative as a species. The one made in the image of our creator if you're made in the image of the creator, you're a creator. Creating relationships and creating ideas. And, and so anyway, we had this fascinating conversation about where we would be. But we broke. Humans broke the world. And so God's dream ever since has been the reuniting. We separated ourselves from God. And we see this early in the story of Israel. That called people that were supposed to be a blessing to all nations the voice and hope of life, God's character to all people. They end up not fulfilling that very well, and Jesus ends up doing it for them. Well, early in their story, Exodus 40, this is the building of the, the, the temporary temple that is portable. They could pack up the tabernacle and move it with them on their way to the promised land. When they finally finish the construction, this is what happens. Then the cloud of God's spirit his presence covered the tent of meeting, the, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All of a sudden, God's presence comes into the presence of humans because this is his dream. Later, we're going to look in 1 Kings, later they build the permanent temple in Jerusalem. By God's instruction, same thing happens. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, <clears throat> where the Ark of the Covenant would sit, the, the center of the, ta uh, of the temple, the cloud of God's Spirit filled the... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, because of the significance of God's presence that now was given to be among the people. And you and I can hear words like tabernacle and temple, and we can start to yawn and think, oh, that's just, that doesn't relate to 20, it's the 21st century. But this is what's important to know. When people went into the tabernacle and into the temple, God had them create and design these structures with reminders of Eden everywhere. Everywhere were reminders of the beauty, the lush creation of Eden, the place where Humans and God dwelled together, walked together, dreamt together. And so when we walked into the tabernacle or the temple, we were reminded, oh, God's dream is that we would once again be together in the same place. Then we have the arrival of Jesus and everything elevates, everything escalates quickly. Where Jesus, we're told, is the temple now. Jesus becomes the temple. John chapter 1. John begins, this amazing gospel of John begins in chapter 1 around this whole point. The word, the message of God, the character of God, the expression of God became flesh and made his dwelling. That's a word that, that's a Greek word that relates to household, like living, domestic living he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth, is now living among us. God's dream is now escalated to the point that he, in bodily form, has come to reunite humans, human space and God's space. It's the temple. Jesus is now the living, walking temple. And if you, if you struggle with that word, Jesus was the temple, he says it in the next chapter, the very next chapter. Listen to this. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. We know what he's talking about. Crucify me, the temple of God. Remember, temple means convergence of God's space and our space. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They think he's talking about the physical place that you can only worship in this building. Our rituals only matter in this building. Religiosity is what matters, and it's all about the temple building. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? This is exactly what Jesus is saying about himself. I am now the embodiment, the space where humans and God can interact once again. I am moving humanity back to Eden. We believe here at Dulles, you know, there's so much thought and terrible teaching about Scripture, what the Bible is and what it says. It's a violent book. God's an angry God. When you actually study and read and study and absorb what God's telling us in his story, none of that is true. We believe here at Dulles that the Bible is entirely Every word, every story, every book and letter fit together perfectly by his spirit, entirely the story of his plan to reunite heaven and earth. That's what the whole story is about. And then we come to us. This is the climatic moment of this final part of the series. And I could try to be like a dramatic pastor and make this emotional or something, but I'm just telling you this is your cue to understand this is the climatic moment now, okay? <laughs> you and me, followers of Jesus, as imperfect as we are, the habits we still struggle with, we, we could argue here all day long why we're not qualified or, Brad, you know, I'm comfortable attending church, I'm, I'm comfortable being a part or helping in some ways, but Part of the solution to our planet? Are you serious? You and I, followers of Jesus, we're told that when we choose to follow Jesus, when we surrender control of our lives to him, he fills us with his spirit. And we become, now, as we await Jesus' return, you and I are now the temple. And I'm telling you, this is, this, this is super intimidating to me. It's super inspiring to me. And with all the emotions and thoughts and how I want to argue, well, not me. I, how could I be God's temple today? I don't want anything to stop me or you from living out this dream of God's. Paul spends the first half of Ephesians making this whole point in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. He didn't come to create a religion. Jesus didn't come to try to make people look cleaned up or sound like religious people. 
He came to actually create a new kind of humanity who will actually be his temple. The convergence, the cathedral of where the remarkable of God and the human condition coexist. He goes on to say, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers from one another, from God's family, or from God. But you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This is about building, constructing. We've been saying here through the series, we're not attending church anymore. If you're new here, if you're newish here, we're so glad you're attending and just considering what we believe. We love that. But if you've been here more than four or five weeks, if your heart's been drawn in by anything here, you're not here to attend. You're here to build. We're building a church. And I'm not even talking about something impressive or a huge crowd. We would love for this crowd to grow. It has been, actually, this summer. This morning, I would rate this morning as considerably lower than our average Sunday uh, in recent months. But crowds to us represent people and their stories and their experience of encountering God, being invited into his presence and his space and his hope and good. But we're not building a structure. We're not building some organization. We are constructing. We're a part of the movement of what Jesus is going to do to heal this world. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. There's the word. You and I, a temple. Peter talks about this. John talks about this. Jesus himself alludes to us as the temple. Remember, temple is the place of the convergence, the intersection of God's space and human space. And now that's supposed to be you and I and our stories and our friendships, the way we live out the hope and good of Jesus' life. And in him, you two are being built together to become a, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Yeah, my notes here. In a world of hurt and disappointment and division, healing does not come by distancing. Healing does not come by distancing yourself from broken humans. It is so tempting to do that. And the older you get and the more you see how hurtful other people can be and the crap that we deal with at work or in our neighborhood or how neighbors can be, or the more we just want to say, you know what? I'm just going to wave, say hello. If somebody's sick, I'll send a text and say, hey, thinking about you, I'm going to keep my distance. Healing of our broken world does not come by that path. And the healing of our world does not come when followers of Jesus just hope that he returns and makes it all better or takes us all away someday. The healing that our world needs is understanding that the sacred place, God's sacred place, the intersection of his beauty, his creativity, his hope is no longer a building. It's the person sitting next to you. It's the person who lives across the street from you. Healing arrives 
when the image bearers of resurrection, those who've experienced resurrection, live as the new temple, the new place of God's presence. The voice of God, the hope of God, the good of God. Jesus' resurrection changed everything. We've talked about this in our series. It changed everything, beginning the movement of the renewal of all things. He used that, that was an expression of Jesus in Matthew, that ultimately his move in this world will renew all things from broken and ashes to beauty and life. No more death, no more aging, no more disease, no more division or brokenness or bullying. All of it gone, all of it renewed. All of the hurt, the stuff that haunts you from your past or things that have been done to you. Jesus' movement of good, his presence coming into this world and invading the dark of this world will eventually, finally be completed when he does return with the renewal of all things, he says. I'm going to reread what Alton read at the start this morning. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. He goes on, in Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright goes on to say, we could cope. We could accept. The world could cope. The world could just kind of accept as, well, that's the way it is, with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope. Can I just deal with passing knowledge with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, who inaugurated, inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one? Somewhere in the beginning of this series, I, I read a story from Tony Campolo's book, The Kingdom of God as a Party, that I read in probably 1995 or something. And it it was one of many things happening in the 90s that just catalyzed in me the passion. As imperfect as I am to be part of the good of Jesus in this world. And it was about when I was really starting to feel this desire to to pastor, to, to lead a church. And the feedback I got from a lot of you after reading the story was... um, super encouraging, because you were like, I want to be part of a church like that too. And so I'm going to reread the story as we end the series. Tony Campolo is a pastor, also a sociologist. He's written some very provocative thoughts over the years about what church is and what church isn't, what it is to actually sound like Jesus as a church, behave like him, look like him, as opposed to churches that are politically driven, and churches that stand against so many people and things and behavior. It's never what the church was supposed to be. And I've, I've loved Tony Campolo's voice uh, in this regard. And so he tells the story of traveling to Hawaii. If you live on the East Coast and travel to Hawaii, you know that there is a time difference that makes 3 o'clock in the morning feel like 9. With that in mind, you will understand that whenever I go to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready, up and ready to go while almost everyone else is still asleep, but I find myself, I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is still closed, which is why on one particular trip I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat 
on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This is one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out of it. But it was the only place I could find that was open. The guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then grabbed a donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around, but when everything is out front where I can see it, I really would have appreciated it if he had used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place, and I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want me to do? You want a birthday party? What do you want from me? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. It's my birthday. And no, no one's ever thrown me a birthday party before. Why should that start now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women left. Then I called over to the guy behind the counter and asked him, hey, do they, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. I said, the one right next to me. Does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A smile slowly crossed his face, and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw her a birthday party right here. <clears throat> His wife came out of the back, all bright and smiling. She said, oh, that's wonderful. This is such a great idea. You know Agnes is one of those people who is really nice and kind, and nobody ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. The guy, the cook behind the counter, said, no way, the cake's mine, I'm doing the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and made a sign out of a big, big pieces of cardboard that read, happy birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that place looking really, really good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because... At 3.15 that morning, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never I read this in 94, 95, and tears were streaming down my face reading this, and I still fight emotion reading this. Never 
have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it completely and just openly weeped, wept. <laughs> Harry, the guy behind the counter, gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after a long moment of silence, he did just that. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right if, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask is, could we just keep the cake a little while longer? I mean, is it all right if we just don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep it. Take it home if you want. She said, can I? Then looking at me, she explained that her mom lives just a few doors down at her house. Could I just take the cake and show my mom? I'll be back quickly, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail. <laughs> she walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place, not knowing what else to do. <laughs> I broke the silence by saying, uh, what do you all say we pray? I love that Tony did that with all these prostitutes. <laughs> Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist and pastor to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her to know God and experience the love of Jesus. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry, walked, uh, Harry waited a moment and he said, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd be a part of a church like that. When I read this story, <laughs> there was no choice in me but to want to be part of a church like that. Not a perfect church, not a church where the pastor's perfect or everybody up on stage has everything together, but a, a place that is genuinely living out the expression of Jesus' hope that we have had expressed toward us. So the practical here, like how do we act on this? There's so many things. Do we have needs here? Of course we do. We're coming out of COVID as a small church. And I'm not waiting for people to come back anymore. Some will. Some will join us. I, but I don't want to be a church anymore that just wonders how big will it be today on Sunday? Oh, it was a bigger crowd. This was a good Sunday. That's, that's just not the thinking God wants us to have anymore. And he's ended that era. I think he kind of used COVID, or at least some of the experience of COVID, to bring that to an end. The day is here where we say, 
hey, I met somebody this week, or there's this guy at work who's been hurting, and we've had coffee, we've had really good conversations. I've been able to be a friend to somebody who's got something going on in life, and I don't know what it is yet, and I'm not pushing, but I'm just, I, I, I can just sense God's in this friendship. See, that's, that's the world changing. That person may not know it. You may not know where that story is going to end, but you just know God's at work. The temple is happening. God's presence, his activity, his space is interacting with our space, our imperfect, broken space. And somehow he's using me. This is, this is the language of a church that's walking in the most exciting idea on earth, that God has invaded our brokenness with his presence. They convert, they're, they're converging again. We have a church world today that's just wondering, why is everything so bad and broken? People ask me this question in various ways all the time. Why? Why the disease? Why the political mess? How come my neighbor and I who got along for so long, he's conservative and I'm liberal and now we don't like each other. What, Brad, how do you explain this spiritually? And I would, I would say it's a result of the Western church believing that the hope of the world is in church attendance and something magical being created up here on stage rather than we, one person at a time, are going to love the way we've been loved. That's what heals our world. And when it's 200,000 people or it's millions of people like what's happening in China now, the church is growing in China. It's unbelievable. Never has earth seen church growth like what's happening in China now. It's exciting to talk about these numbers. When it's just one person... At coffee, it just doesn't have that same emotional drama to it, but that's how the world changes. And if we don't adopt this and say, yes, Jesus, this is the hope, this is the most exciting idea that's ever come to our planet, we will, for the next two-year cycles and four-year cycles, the rest of our lives, put our hope in the next election or the next innovation or the next technology. Why would we do that? Why would we get to our 80s and 90s and regret? Why not? Let's decide now. I'm going to be part. I'm going to, I'm going to pay the cost. I'm going to give up a Tuesday night. I'm going to give up a Wednesday evening. I'm going to give up part of my weekend to be a friend, to be available. Let's think about our children growing up as part of the movement instead of they're being taken care of down the hall and entertained this morning. You know, it's funny, Amy and I treat it Sunday morning church, even though I was a pastor, we treat it Sunday morning church kind of like date time. It's like, we don't have to manage our kids for an hour. Somebody down the hall's got her. <laughs> we get a break, and that's cool, and please keep coming if that's your thinking, because we're happy to help in that way. But let's also think our kids are going to grow up learning to be part of this movement of old and ashes and what's ruined being made alive again in humanity. Okay, I could talk about this another 12 weeks, but I'm starting a new series next week called How To. We're going to talk about how to thrive in many ways of life in October. I'm excited about this series. Don't miss it. Invite a friend. But we need you. We need you to be all in here.
as a builder, not an attender. Help us build this place. Help us build it by serving. Would you serve one hour a month? I mean, that's what it comes down to. On one team, most of our teams, we need really an hour a month if we have a good rotation. Would you give financially? Uh, we're okay. We don't have debt. We still have some savings. We are using our savings every month, as most churches in the United States are doing uh, after COVID. Would you invest with us? And as much as we need it in our budget, you need it. You need to step into the space of trusting that God is actually your provider. And one of the mechanisms he gave us is to give our money away to our local church as investors of what he's doing through the church. We like to think, well, God doesn't, if God is God, he doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money, but you need to be a giver. If you're part of the movement, you're a giver. You're an investor. And remember, God so loved this broken planet, he gave what was most costly to him. Join a team. Get into community. Uh, we're starting two new community groups uh, this fall. Look for an opportunity. We're going to do a really great uh, study, I believe, on Ephesians. I think it's going to be really good if you're looking for a deep dive into Scripture. If you're looking for a conversation about confidence and faith in the Bible, we're going to do that also. Or ask questions. How do I get involved? What's a step for me to be part of the movement? We'd love to meet with you or talk with you or have coffee with you. I love you guys. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the story of Agnes, where the world wants to define her as a prostitute and wants to slide down the bench or the stool away from somebody like that. Your church moves towards Agnes the way you've moved toward me. And all you're asking of us is to say yes to being that movement toward Agnes, toward our neighbor, toward, toward the, the guy at work that's loud or obnoxious or the person who's hard to love or praying for the person who's hurt us. This is how our world becomes new. May we live in it. May we say yes to you. May every day regularly throughout our week. May we be interacting with you, God, instead of do for me, do for me. May we converse with you, God, asking you, what, what can I do in someone's life to show your love and your reality? And Jesus, as the world changes around us, one person at a time, we will give you all the credit. Amen. <laughs>